I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more important books of the year is the memoir by Marsha Lederman, Kiss the Red Stairs, The Holocaust Once Removed. The book follows the last few years in Marsha's life. She contends with moving to Vancouver for her job, writing for a national newspaper, getting married, and giving birth to a son. Then, in the wake of a divorce compounded with what's going on politically in the United States and elsewhere, like the rise of anti-Semitism, Ms. Lederman, who joins me now, is drawn to her parents, both of whom have died. She needs their help, and she connects with them through families still living, like her two sisters, as well as a diary uh, her father kept in interviews that her mother gave. Marsha reads all she can about the Holocaust, and she comes to the realization that her story is very much their story, that the effect of intergenerational trauma has shaped her own life. There's a lot in this book that's harrowing, like when the author recounts the horrifying journey her parents suffered during the Holocaust. There's a lot in the book that's also amazing, as the author recounts their stories, her story, through the help of uh, lore passed down through other family members. There's beautiful writing as well as humor and resilience throughout. Marsha Lederman is the Western Arts Correspondent for the Globe and Mail. She worked in commercial radio as a reporter, newscaster, and host, as well uh, was a national arts reporter for CBC Radio. Her Twitter handle is at Marsha Lederman. This uh, book is published by McClelland and Stewart. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Marsha Lederman. Ms. Lederman, good morning. Hello, how are you? Pretty good yourself. I'm great. Very so, happy to be talking to you. I'm happy to talk to you as well. I, I, you know, when you first tweeted about this book, I, I don't know how long ago this was, maybe more than a year ago. Um, Probably. Yeah, yeah. As a big fan of yours, I knew I was going to like the book. I just didn't have an, uh, an idea. I mean, after finishing it, I, I had no idea that I, how much it, it, um, it meant a great deal. I mean, I, I think that's what a lot of people are telling you, right? People have read the book. Yeah, it's really interesting. The response has been really beautiful uh, for for me, and uh, really, um, really heartwarming because it was it was a hard book to write. Mm-hmm. It's a hard book to sort of put out there, but the reactions have been you know there's all kinds of range. I'm hearing from a lot of people who have a similar background to mine who say. Are you me? Are you writing my story? Because what you're writing is exactly what I've been feeling. And that's good to hear in a way. It's also distressing that, you know, there there are many of us out there suffering in this way. I've been hearing from people from different backgrounds talking to me about their intergenerational trauma. And that is, again, it's not a happy thing, but my goal in writing this was to bridge... um, you know, different communities, because I think so many of us have this. There is trauma in so many of our pasts, and it is affecting us, I think, in a profound way. Um, and it's not just the descendants of Holocaust survivors mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are dealing with this. And then, you know, even just uh, today, someone said to me, you know, I was feeling kind of rotten about things. And then I started reading your book and I thought, what do I have to complain about? You know, <laughs> we don't have real problems. And which is sort of a theme that I come back to a few times yeah. in the book. Um, but, yeah, it's good to have some perspective, I think. And I, I try to remember that as well. I forget sometimes. Yeah, you you draw uh, parallels in the book towards the the, the trauma that say um, the indigenous, the, the native population in Canada have have experienced. It's, it's it's a very powerful chapter that you write there about um, the 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 experience that you had as well with 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 a community on the island, um, and then you find you found commonalities with say the the black experience with slavery in your travels in the United States, right? Yes, um, you know I'm I've been so privileged to meet, first of all, a lot of Indigenous artists in particular, given my day job. Mm -hmm. I write about the arts for the Globe and Mail, and I have this amazing job where I get to interview artists, and out here there are so many, um, well, there are so many talented artists, but many of them are Indigenous Mm -hmm. uh, from different First Nations, and there are so many commonalities with the trauma 
that they experienced and experience and um, that that my family had experienced. And it really came to life to me when I had this one particular interview where an artist, Carrie Newman, uh, told me about his father's arrival at residential school when he was a very little boy. And a, a very traumatic thing happened to his father. He had his head shaved. He was a little boy. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to my mother when she arrived at Auschwitz. Mm. She had her head shaved. And just that, the parallel of that experience really hit, hit something in my heart. And I, um, I've gone searching for those, those connections ever since. The, 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 um, when you write about intergenerational trauma, as you do in the book, it, it's uh, fascinating because it, it, um, it takes to the form um, with you in in a number of ways. Just, there's so many triggering moments, if you will, that that um, that you certainly felt, but you you. I, I guess this is what you work through in the book that you didn't realize at the at the time, because I mean, you you mentioned going to work one day, and seeing the um, the, the the mobile paper shredder outside yeah. the office, and then um, you realize that 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 triggers something in you, doesn't it? Yeah, and, you know, even before I realize it, mm -hmm. it's just, it happens. So I look, I see this mobile paper shredding truck, and immediately my first thought is the mobile gas vans that the Nazis used uh, to murder Jews in the most horrific ways. Yeah. Uh, not just Jews, but um, yeah. Jews were a, a, a very large part of their plan. Mm -hmm. um, these vans were sort of, I think I call them precursors to Auschwitz on wheels, and that's essentially what they were. They, um, these mobile killing groups started uh, shooting uh, with mass shootings, um, murdering groups of Jews. Then they, someone invented this gas van, and then eventually um, they came up with the gas chamber. <clears throat> and when I saw that paper shredding truck, the first thing I thought of was the mobile gas van, mm. even though I was not thinking about the Holocaust yeah. that day. It wasn't like I'd been reading a book about it. It wasn't like I was writing my book about it. Mm -hmm. I was in the midst of, you know, a normal morning, getting my kid off to, you know, the, um, the nanny and getting myself ready for work and getting on the SkyTrain. And it's amazing how often in various places, like, there, there's no really common mm -hmm. feature except for me. Um, something that seems really um, <laughs> quite harmless will trigger a, a memory, not a memory, but a, a thought about the Holocaust for me. And that's just one example. It seemed like a particularly out there one. Like yeah. I see a paper shredding truck and I think of a mobile gas fan. Yeah, and yeah. then I just get on with my day because... Yeah. What choice do I have? And then there are certain car brands, certain uh, manufacturing brands and the sort that also do the same thing for you. In, in terms of growing up, um, when your parents were alive, I mean, uh, well, I'll talk about them in a second because they're such, such fascinating people. But um, what, what sort of knowledge did you have growing up about their experience during the, the Holocaust? I mean, this is not something that they, you, they, they talked about freely, I guess, people of that generation, right? Some did. Mm -hmm. uh, some never spoke about it at all. Some spoke about it incessantly. Our family fell somewhere in the middle where it was brought up in sort of bits and pieces. Um, I, I think I, I say that I learned about the Holocaust through osmosis because there would be things that my parents would talk about. It's not like they sat me down and told me the story, although I'll, we'll talk about yeah. when my mother first told me directly about it. But I just knew they were talking about this happened in camp or um, back home uh, we didn't have this, back home meaning Poland where uh -huh. they were from, uh, food, their attitudes toward, toward food in particular. Food was a very, very precious commodity. It was never to be wasted or thrown out. Mm -hmm. um, and I always sort of understood that there was something kind of serious about that. There was something it. And then when I was five years old, 
I got my first friend, mm-hmm. and she, um, I would spend a lot of time at her at her house because it was a lot of fun at her house, and she had grandparents who were amazing, these amazing people who would come in and, you know, the, the mood would lighten as soon as they were there and everyone was being smushed in giant <laughs> hugs. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was really a beautiful thing to see. And I remember thinking, why don't I have grandparents? Yeah. I, I would like some of these. Uh, so I went home and one day just asked my mother, you know, Pearl has grandparents, why don't I? And my mother, of course, must have been blindsided by this question. She wasn't expecting it. Um, and her answer was uh, not ideal in terms of parenting, but <laughs> not that I blame her. I don't think she was really prepared. I know she wasn't. Uh-huh. She was a little bit too frank. Um, she said, well, um, your uh, your grandparents um, – we're, Jew- we're Jewish, uh-huh. and um, you, the Germans hated the Jews, and they killed them by making them go into gas showers. And, you know, I'm my, my memory of this is imperfect. I don't remember exactly the words she said or exactly what my thoughts were, but they went something like this. Uh, we're Jewish. Isn't everyone Jewish? Because mm-hmm. I guess when you're five, you think your own experience sure. is everyone's yeah. experience. And then, um, oh, who are the Germans? Who are Germans? And why do they? Why did they hate Jews? Oh, do they still hate Jews? Mm. And then it was also like this—the uh, imagery of the gas shower really stayed with me. I was trying to picture what it looked like. Did it look like the shower in our bathroom? And like, did gas come out of the spout instead of water? And how did that kill you? Did it? Did it? burn you like did it choke you I didn't know Mm -hmm. so these were all the things that were going around in my head Um, I didn't ask any of those questions Uh, in fact from that very brief interaction I think the message that I got was be very careful what you ask about because you know the answers uh, could be horrific as as that one was yeah so there's a difference in age between you and your sisters they're they're, um, older than you are um, yeah, d- d- they're d- much older. Yeah, yeah so, so you... <laughs> they, they love when I say that. By the way. <laughs> so you grew up. Um, a large part of your childhood was just you, your mom, and your dad, right? Yeah. So my oldest sister is seventeen years older than me, mm-hmm. and she got married when I was four, mm-hmm. and she was out of the house at four when I was four. And then my other sister is ten years older than me, and she moved out of the house when I was about eleven, ten or eleven. Uh, or 12, um, and she got married at 13, and when I was 13, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, they were largely not around. And even when they were around, they were, you know, they were teenagers. They were not interested in hanging out with me at the time. So, but when they grew up, though, did did, did they... Because you do a fascinating thing in the book where, where you narrate what happens to your father, and it's a, such a powerful chapter that I think people should read it um, uh, without getting into it. Um, how were you able to, say, piece that together? Was that, was that stories that they heard themselves growing up? Um, were, the, were they stories that you heard? Was it research that you did in the course of writing the book? How did you put that all together? So all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, the main part of the story, um, and thank you, I'm glad that you appreciated it. It was crazy how my father survived the war. The main part of that came to me from my mother. Mm. My mother told me the story. My father died um, suddenly on a trip when I when I was 18. I just turned 18. And I never got a lot of this history directly from him in terms of him sitting down and telling me the stories. But I knew a few things, but most I learned from my mother Um, He also kept a diary when he went back to Poland on a trip in 1979 Mm -hmm. uh, that that one of my sisters found after my mother died. And reading that journal was very illuminating. I I learned uh, a lot about him. And there were clues in that diary that helped me to research and find 
other information about him. But my sisters knew a lot more from him directly. They, as I say, they were older. They had, um, when I started doing this research, they presented me with these file folders full of information and um, uh, family trees and different charts. And my father had drawn a little map of where he and my mother lived mm-hmm. in Germany together because um, my my oldest sister was going there to visit and th- he was hoping that she would be able to find the house. Um, so all of that stuff, I mean, that was a treasure trove, but it was a lot of work trying to piece it all together and there are still so many unanswered questions I, that I will never have the answers to. Um, you, you mentioned in the the other fascinating thing that, that about learning about you was getting to know you sort of as a teenager, and, and you write in the book that that um, your dad found you difficult to like. Um, yes. That that um, Marsha as a teenager wasn't particularly nice, was she? No, I was I was not nice. I was um, kind of, I'm not sure if I can say this on your podcast. You, you can say anything. A, yeah. <laughs> I was a bitchy teenager. I was very moody. I was, you know, very dramatic. <laughs> I, I had these huge dreams and I didn't want to be in this suburb in the suburban bungalow. I wanted to be out there changing the world. And my parents were embarrassing and they, um, they had, accents and they were boring and I wanted nothing to do with them. I mean, I'm sure this is sort of not unusual. I'm the mother of a 13-year-old. I'm starting to go down that (laughs) path myself on the other side of it, and I deserve every moment of grief that I get. Um, But I was, you know, I, I was more interested in my friends. I was more interested in shopping. I was more interested in all kinds of shallow things than I was in hanging out with my dad and hearing his story, his stories. And, Mm. you know, then he he died four days after my 18th birthday, and I never got to know him. And in reading that journal, Joe, something really interesting happened to me. I I got to know him, not just the facts of his life in Poland or Germany, but I got to know him in a way I'm not sure I had known him when I was growing up. And there were so many similarities between uh, the two of us. He, first of all, he is a beautiful writer. And I think that maybe I inherited my ability Mm. to write from him. He was hilarious. He had such a dry sense of humor, but a really beautiful power of observation. And uh, reading those entries, I just felt such a connection to him. It was an amazing experience. I'm also very sad because I can never actually connect with him. Yeah, it, it, it's um, it's melancholy to read, obviously, because you, you have asides as you, as you reprint what he writes in the book. Uh, which I, I found some of them amusing, um, but you you really do have this conversation. You, you try to have a conversation with him, don't you? As as you you uh, narrate, say that that trip in 1979 back to to where he went, and and um, you trying to piece that together, if you will, in your own mind, right? Oh, I'm so glad you saw it that way. It really felt that way, and in fact, I consider this whole book a bit of a conversation with my parents. Uh, because when I was writing it, I, I missed them so desperately, and it felt like I was doing this with them. Uh, it was a collaboration, and, you know, the idea that for me to have my father's words printed in a book, that is actually extremely thrilling, um, and um, I, I do feel like we were very much working on this together in a weird kind of way. So they were parents to you, but um, they're parents to two other people. What have your sisters thought of, of uh, say, some of the conclusions that you come to in Kiss the Red Stairs? Well, my sisters were, first of all, absolutely crucial in writing this book. They they provided me with so much information and support and um, really a lot of work in terms of research. We were connecting 
through the pandemic on uh, FaceTime calls, which mm-hmm. is something we'd never done before. And now it's become part of our ritual yeah. because they live in Ontario and it's really been great. So we would go through all of this information about the book and then we would talk about our lives and it was really nice because the three of us don't get together very often. We live in three different cities. Um, they are, um, I think their experience was a little different than mine uh, just because of, of the age gap, as you point out, and they had um, our parents in their lives much longer than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're probably affected in a slightly different way, um, but they, um, you know, they might think of, uh, they might not think about these things as much as I do, and maybe that's not fair or correct, but mm-hmm. um, I think we all have our own ways of dealing with this. We're all pretty obsessed with um, the Holocaust, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, one sister and I both have like this huge part of our bookshelves that's the Holocaust uh, section, um, and it's pretty big. Um, but, you know, they, they're... They're amazing, and they have amazing children. And, you know, every time our family grows, and sorry, they have amazing children and grandchildren, Mm. and every time our family grows, I think, yeah, this is our way of saying F you to the Nazis. We're still here, and we're growing, and we're contributing to the world in, in different ways. So you, you, the the, well, the first chapter, uh, actually, it's, it, there's a prologue, and then the first chapter of the book begins with you in, in, in November of 2017, uh, when things in your life were sort of coming to a head. Things were things were not great, if you will, and so um, this is the beginning of the journey in terms of realizing just how um, um, how Hitler really did fuck you up in terms of uh, what was happening in your in your life and 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 all the things that you were thinking about um the experience that you were having though in terms of say uh, connecting that to say the intergenerational trauma that we've we've already touched on um is that similar to say others who are second or third generation survivors say yeah well there are different ways that i think i've been affected and you know i'll be very clear like i think i'm you know, rel- relatively unscathed. I feel pretty healthy, but I am extremely pessimistic. It's pretty suspicious. Um, always waiting for something to go wrong. Um, all uh, excellent qualities to have if you're a journalist. And <laughs> yeah. maybe less so in your own life. Um, you know, I can be morose. I can be, you know, I've I sort of identify as a victim, which I, is something I'm really working on. I do not want to identify as a victim anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but at that, around that time, there had been all of these studies that were um, being conducted into the possible transmission of trauma intergenerationally, uh, biologically, not just, you know, your parents uh, survived the Holocaust, so maybe they weren't ideal parents to yeah. you, and yeah. so that shaped you in a way. But actually talking about um, nature, um, that um, your DNA isn't altered necessarily. Your DNA is not altered, not necessarily, yeah. but it's not altered. But the way it's expressed is altered because of these chemical marks that had been, um, that resulted from the trauma that you're, parents experienced and there were studies showing that those markers could continue into the offspring and it's you know it's not conclusive i'd say the the jury is still out on that but there's a lot of really exciting research being done on it um and so this was happening around the same time i was going through kind of a dark period in my life and i was reading these studies and thinking oh is this why i'm having such a hard time dealing with adversity and yes because that was one of the headlines i read yeah. children of holocaust survivors have a hard time bouncing back from adversity and i thought oh that's me um so it was all sort of happening at once and i became very interested in this in this area of uh science and research and read as much as i could understand about it and that that was a big part of this journey 
Yeah, one of the things you say near the end of the book um, uh, that I didn't know about is that that uh, when a female is born, um, their eggs are uh, um, formed, I guess, in the in their bodies. Yeah. And so, if 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 your mother uh, was in, uh, essentially, you would have been in in the concentration camp with her, right? That was a very late addition to the book because I had a science journalist fact check the. Mm-hmm. chapter that that is in um, because I was, as I said, I, I'm not great with science and I uh, was very interested in having her help me with the uh, epigenetic uh, explanation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in her sort of report to me about the chapter, she mentioned that. Um, I mean, she didn't say you were in Auschwitz, but she mentioned this this fact about the eggs. And I thought, oh, my God. If yeah. my mother was born with all her eggs and I was I was there in yeah. you know in a teeny tiny way, I don't know. There was something about that that just gave gave me chills. Yeah, I mean, I just I have the same reaction to it, and and um, in a way, uh, where it comes in in the book, um, it, it sort of makes sense. I mean, it it um, the the other thing, Marcia, that you do in the book that that I found funny was. Um, as you're wading through all the science, you're doing a lot of reading, not just science, but but other other books and the sort. Um, you were able to find sort of the lyricism in in some of the academic writing. Yeah. Well, there is so there there is no shortage of um, uh, literary coverage of mm-hmm. the Holocaust in yeah. many many ways: history, memoir, um, science, and I found myself with these stacks of books everywhere. My bedroom was filled with them and most of my house. And some of the books, I mean, some of the books were very difficult to read in terms of the, the horrors that they contained. These were the memoirs. But some of them were so positive in spite yeah. of it all yeah. and gave me um, such a lift. And, uh, you know, there's Viktor Frankl's, you know, iconic um, book that uh, the name of which currently escapes me because I'm talking to you, um, Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was that was a very important book to me, and so was another book um, by a woman named Edith Eva Eager, E G E R, and her book was called The Choice. She is she is an Auschwitz survivor who uh, went into psychology and psychiatry and and helps people, not just like me, but all kinds of people. And she uses her, her trauma in her life to inform her approach. And those books, those two in particular, gave me a lot of, uh, a lot of comfort. Yeah, you, you you talk in the book about the the uh, Fred Herzog piece that you wrote in the Globe mm-hmm. and Mail, and um, I, I was astonished to read that the, it's almost ten years ago now. Um, when um, uh, when it appeared, um, it, it caused a lot of people to talk, and uh, and you got a lot of mail about it. Um, one of the things I didn't know at the time was that um, a lot of time passed between that first time you interviewed him and when the piece eventually ran. Is that right? Yes, and it was for mostly for a bunch of bureaucratic yeah. reasons at the Globe and Mail. There were there was turnover in my department and no editor for mm-hmm. me to work with. And it was it wasn't the kind of story that you could just run with. It needed a, a lot of guidance and um, editorial support. Yeah. So when you talk about that episode in in the in the book. Um, it uh, that experience illuminated something for you in terms of Holocaust denial. Um, that there's sort of I, I don't know I, for lack of a better way to put it, there's sort of a spectrum, if you will, in terms of how people deny the Holocaust. Um, one realizes as they read the book, "Kiss the Red Stairs," just how vile um, all this anti-Semitism is. That 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 Holocaust denial, in particular, is not some parlor game that that people should be debating even. Um, what did um, what did you learn most in terms of of how people viewed Jews, especially after the experience of, of of the Herzog piece running? Say, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, mm-hmm. um, but 
you know, you talk about a lot of mail. It didn't all go to me. A lot of it went to my superiors. Um, There was not, um, there was a ton of support. I did receive a lot of support, uh, people who couldn't believe it, um, like in a good way, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to thinking I made it up. But there was also a lot of, you know, why did she have to do this? Why did she have to stir the pot? Why did she have to write this story? What was she trying to do? Yeah. This was this was an ambush. She went in there. She wanted to she wanted to go after him. She was looking for this. She just wanted to get her family story in the newspaper. Um, all kinds of like crazy sort of. Um, Crap. Accusations, yeah. which were absolutely untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I really wrestled with um, that, not whether I should write the story. I mean, I did wrestle with that initially. Mm-hmm. But with what happened that he, you know, didn't know about what really happened in the Holocaust. How do you get to that age and be, you know, an artist, someone who is engaged with ideas and mm-hmm. a brilliant man and not know that <laughs> Jews in concentration camps were not well fed um, and things like that. And that the biggest killer of Jews in the Second World War was not, in fact, life. Um, it was really, um, it was a very upsetting experience Um and I still, to this day, will hear through people, oh, this, you know, about other people in the art world who were upset with me for writing that story. And I just roll my eyes because I don't think, I don't think my job is to suppress information. Yeah, I mean, and as you said, I mean, a lot of the the, the things that people are accusing you of, I mean, they're, 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 if they read the book, they'll they'll find out, you know, what what really happened and. and you know, this this you know this was not something that you sought, if you will. No, yeah. it was like an accident. Exactly. I just I had extra time, so I asked oh. him this question that led to him going um, on about the so-called Holocaust, and it, things deteriorated from there. So I mentioned that was um, ten years ago now since that that piece ran, and and a lot has happened in the in the culture and the world in the last ten years. You just look to our friends in the United States as to what's happened there. Um, you mentioned uh, um, whether the reaction to to that piece surprised you. I mean, it, it, it sort of, after reading the book, it, it um, I guess it didn't surprise me, and it, and it it made me realize, you know, what's happened is was inevitable in a way, wasn't it? What's happened in terms of oh, you the know, crazy yeah. racism that we're seeing all around us? Yeah, that we're seeing. You know, we're seeing um, anti-Semitism come back in a way that I guess we didn't expect ten years ago, right? Well, I sure didn't. I mean, when I was growing up, there was anti-Semitism, and then it felt like there was a moment where it became absolutely socially unacceptable to be openly anti-Semitic. Yeah. Yeah. I think about the the nineties in particular. Yeah. Um, Schindler's List came out. It made a real, a big splash. And I think a lot of people who had not been aware of these events became aware of them through pop culture. And, you know, um, this is what anti-Semitism can ultimately lead to. It, it, it's, you know, an absolutely crazy out there, horrific example, but it happened. Yeah. So I think that the Holocaust was a barrier to anti-Semitism or to outright anti-Semitism. But that seems to have faded. And there is a lot of anti-Semitism out there. There's a lot of racism out there. Um, And, and, you know, thank goodness, I think we're paying attention to racism and, and really working as a society to combat it, although there's just so much of it. Sometimes anti-Semitism gets left out of that conversation for reasons I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Um, And it's it's hugely upsetting and difficult for me to deal with. For instance, there was that recent shooting in Buffalo, which Mm. was horrible, which targeted black people in particular. But this person's manifesto uh, was incredibly Mm anti-Semitic. This great replacement theory is incredibly anti-Semitic. 
Um, and, you know, it just feels like it's the, either the, it just feels like the Jews are constantly being targeted in one way or another. And yet somehow it's not, it's not given the same kind of gravity by um, certain societal uh, circles. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a part in the book where you um, uh, talk about carrying trauma and, and what a burden that is that you, you've had to contend with. Um, and you mention that um, you, you didn't really think about it in terms of, um, say, uh, uh, when you were thinking of having children. But it's something that you think about even now in terms of um, what are you passing on to your son, say. Oh, yeah. Um, it's interesting. It was my editor, my book editor, who asked me, did you ever think about not having children because mm-hmm. you were worried about passing on this trauma? And I, I said, no, not at all. It didn't even occur to me. Um, but now, as you say, I do worry about it, maybe because I'm so much more engaged with it because I've spent the last few years like surrounded by it and thinking about it all the time and also thinking about the ways that it was that this history um, was presented to me and trying to ensure that my son is not uh, affected in the same way uh, by um, an inappropriate transmission of this story so it's it's a tough one because I've really struggled with how to talk to him about his history. And what I come down to is, you know, talk to him about the heroism that his grandparents uh, demonstrated and their resilience in um, starting again after surviving this massacre. Uh, and I, I hope he's okay. Yeah. I really do. Does he ask you questions about about his grandparents? Not really. He doesn't. Um, he's 13. He, maybe he's not that interested, just yeah. like I wasn't interested when I was a teenager. Um, but I take some solace in the fact that I've written a whole bunch of it down now. Right. So yeah. he can't help but know some of the stories. It really is. I mean, Kiss the Red Stairs is a marvelous gift, not just to readers like myself, but but certainly for him um, when he eventually gets down to reading it. Um, the um, another I mentioned um, how you were as a teenager earlier. The thing that I keep thinking about since I mentioned that was the uh, the incident where they gave you a, a popcorn maker as a gift. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I laughed out loud reading that. I'm so glad. Yeah, my parents gave me a hot air popcorn popper for Hanukkah one year. And I thought, what kind of gift is this? A small appliance? Like, what teenager wants that? God, I was such a bitch. And now now I I love my hot air. I recently bought a new one. And I, I love my hot air popcorn popper. The um, is, so the book is is uh, obviously um, often harrowing, but but it's 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 the the wit like that that um, I think leavens the the, the story and um, uh, make makes it as compelling as it is. You, you seem to bear yourself throughout the book in a way that um, I suspect isn't easy for anybody. Um, when when it gets too close or too personal, sometimes did, did you have to sort of wonder why you're doing it? You know, when I was writing it, I didn't. I never thought about that. I never thought about the reader mm. <laughs> digesting this information. Um, it, it's it's such a solitary kind of uh, process. I just sat here and wrote and wrote and wrote, and didn't really think a lot about that. It's now really interesting to see, like. There is no one on the planet who knew that much about me, who knows that much about me that that's in the book. Mm. Um, and now anyone can know all of that. Um, it's a good thing I didn't, or maybe it's not, but I didn't, if I thought about it, I think, in a really um, kind of measured way when I was writing, I might have pulled back a little. And I'm, I'm guess I'm glad I, I didn't pull back. I, I think it, would, it wouldn't have been authentic. So some people will will invariably read the book looking for 
um, a way to get through some of the things that, that happened to you, you know, this abyss that you talk about in, 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 throughout the book. Um, they might want to, to find, um, I don't know, something prescriptive, if you will. Do you think the book can be read like that? I don't think it's a self-help book, but I do think you, I, I think it's impossible to read that book and not come out of it, especially in the last third, thinking um, in a different way about life, how lucky we are to be here, how we can, you know, how we can handle things, really, we can handle almost anything, and um People have dealt with much worse than what I have ever dealt with, and they've come through. And that helped me. It helped me to read about it. And I do hope that my book can help people as well. I, I hope it can give people some hope and some light, um, even though, yes, there are some harrowing parts. But I'm glad that you found some of it laugh out loud funny because that was very intentional. Um, I, I, you know, it's not a, a comedic work, but I'm a person who deals with life through humor, and so it had to be part of the book as well, because the book is a reflection of me. The thing I got out of it, and, and, and um, it, it's the urgency of, of asking the people around you their story and finding out about one's own history, because, you know, as I said, it's an urgent thing that, you know, that's, that we're living with, I guess, you know, that... that people around us die and uh, one day they won't be around for us to ask them what happened if there is anything that people walk away with after reading this book I hope it is um, a drive to talk to the people in their families people in their world about their stories about their lives to get it to get it down to, sh to have it shared um, I, that has been really gratifying for me. You know, we started this conversation with me talking to you about some of the response. That is probably the thing I've heard the most. Mm. Um, I, and I've booked this trip to go visit my parents. I've, someone I know, um, a cousin of mine booked a trip to go back to Poland, just sort of spontaneously go back. She's never been, but to go to Poland and see where her family had lived, um, and I, I'm thrilled that I might have some effect on other people getting their family stories from the elders in their lives. It's really an important thing to do that I neglected to do. This trip that you had planned in March of 2020 to, with your sisters to go uh, to Germany to uh, see the farm, especially where your father had lived, um, that, that that got put off in March 2020 because of, of the pandemic. Are you, have you made plans to, to finally do that trip, say? You know, I was just talking to my sister about this the other day. Um, we're, we really want to do it. It's mm -hmm. a little hard for my oldest sister to travel at the moment, but we're we're talking about it. They really want us to come uh, in Germany and I really want to go. I'm going no matter what, whether they come or not, um, I'm going. So I, I hope I can go soon um, because, you know, there are older people there mm -hmm. that I want to see and talk to, and I hope to be able to write about it in some way when that happens. It's a, it's a marvelous book, and, and, yeah, I was just thinking about how uh, it seemed unfinished in that regard, and... and uh, hopefully uh, a sequel might come about after this trip, right? Kissed the red stare. Maybe I'll call it that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, you're a journalist that, that a lot of people have a, a great deal of regard for, and, and um, one would assume that writing comes quickly because of your, your line of work. Um, in terms of writing this book, did, did you have to change your mindset in, uh, as to how you wrote? Yeah, it was completely different. Uh, first of all, I wrote a very extensive outline um, at the beginning, or when I realized, oh gosh, I think you're writing a book here, as yeah. I was taking all these notes down. 
And that was a guide, even though in the end, I think the book is very different from the outline that I wrote initially. Well, I know it's very different. Um, it was <laughs> the pandemic happened to begin with. The trip to Germany and Poland, that was supposed to be, you know, kind of the climax of the book. Um, and, you know, there was actually going to be a lot more science in the book. And I realized as I was researching that I didn't enjoy writing about science. Mm. <laughs> and maybe I'm not very good at it. So it took a very long time. Um, but at the same time, when I was writing, it was just coming out of me. It was just flowing in a really, sometimes, um, in a really good way. It just felt like the story has been sitting here my whole life waiting to get out. And I was, I was unleashing it onto my computer and now into the world. Yeah, there, there are parts of the book that come off as, as urgent. Like you, you can see that someone has, has um, written this in a very quick uh, period of time, um, which um, is enjoyable in a way because then we really do feel like we're in your headspace as, as you're going through whatever you're going through that you're writing about. And um, I think that's what, what's connecting with a lot of readers. I did write, I mean, I wrote the bulk of it in during the pandemic, uh-huh. in that first first year of the pandemic, for sure. But I'd written some before, and I wrote some in, you know, last year as well. But 2020 was when the bulk of it was being written, and it was such a weird time, right? We mm, yeah. couldn't go anywhere. I was here with my son and um, trying to write and do my job as well and dealing with this pandemic. My kid was in school online. It was just a crazy time. Um, so maybe that maybe that energy came out on the page because it was kind of a frantic time. It was things were happening and I was just I was just going with it. Um, it all of my all of my expectations for how writing that book was going to look um, were completely thrown out when the pandemic happened and it became a bit of a pandemic story as well. Not that I, I haven't been asking you personal questions, but this is this is a tad personal, and I hope if, if I am straying, um, uh, you'll you'll tell me um, the, um, the the book contends with with a lot of fate, um, th- these amazing moments of of coincidence, um, and uh, it, it obviously deals with with being Jewish. Um, well, how is your own relationship to to faith or or religion even? Has that changed at all in the course of writing this book? Not at all. I'm not a religious person. Um, but at the same time, I my Judaism is important to me. Mm. I don't observe it in any religious way, but it is the culture is extremely important to me. And in fact, last year, um, I had my son had his bar mitzvah, which is... Um, which makes it into the book as well in yeah. the end. And it, none of that is, you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't pray. I don't do any of that. But at the same time, I'm very, I'm Jewish in a way. Like there are certain yeah. holidays that are very important to me and that I would always observe in some way and will always continue to observe. I have a mezuzah on the front of my house, which is sort of this, um, it holds a prayer, and you'll, you'll notice it at the doorpost yeah. in, in certain ha- on certain houses. I, you know, I love to hear Yiddish spoken. I, I, it's my life. It's my background. Um, it's very important to me culturally, but not in any sort of religious way. No. Yeah. See, I, I wondered about that because I mean, it, you, you mentioned that you didn't have a bat, bat mitzvah when 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 you came of age um i wondered as i was reading the book if because you do mention your son's bar mitzvah uh, um, you, you narrate that in the epilogue um if if that changed anything for you i mean i, I just wonder about um uh, it, it's such a part of your identity that that um i guess all the religions that, that, that whatever one religion one grows up with i guess it does stay with you doesn't it 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, depending on how much, how big a part of your life it is. Yeah. It was a huge part of our lives, but we weren't, it was very strange. Like we were, we were very Jewish uh-huh. and we observed, we were kosher, but we never went to synagogue only on the very, like the high holidays. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I should say, for, when my son had his bar mitzvah, I also learned to uh, chant from the Torah and mm. to um, to read a portion of his portion, and I did it in the synagogue. And I think that might count as a bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm, as that mm-hmm. seems to be like you know, it was a little late, but I did it, and and it wasn't again it wasn't really a religious experience for me it was very much a cultural experience and um you know i wasn't thinking about god i was thinking about my parents and yeah. my grandparents mm. and my son and my family and that i think when i think about judaism a, a lot of that is about gathering with community and family um as opposed to praying to a god yeah that, that it really i mean that that's the the one of the messages i got out of the book is that you have to realize that there there are people around you um and and you know you're you're communing with with your your past um throughout the book but there, there are people around you now and and you think you've got the eye to the future in terms of um what it'll be like for your son say exactly he you know i want him to see how important community is. Mm-hmm. Community is everything to me. I'm so blessed to have so many great friends and family members, um, and he is too, and I want him to appreciate that in the way that I have come to really appreciate it. Does Vancouver feel like home? Finally, it does, mm. yes. Um it has for a while. I, I remember the moment it started to feel like home. So I moved here in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then when whenever the hockey riot was, uh, was that 2011? 2011. Yeah, 2011. Yeah. So I happened to be in Banff when that happened. And I was listening to what was going on on the radio. I happened to be there for work. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I was driving back to Calgary and they were having a phone-in. A radio station was having a phone-in and people were talking about this riot in Vancouver. And I was getting so defensive about Vancouver. And I thought, you can't talk about my city that way. And then I thought, okay. Vancouver's home now, yeah. and it really is. I I can't imagine living anywhere else. I love it so much here. I could um, talk all uh, afternoon with you about this book and and um, just just how special and remarkable it is. Congratulations on it, Marcia, and I so appreciate your time today. Thanks for this. Thank you. I I loved this conversation. Thank you for those questions and for engaging so deeply with the book. I, I really appreciate it. The Twitter handle is at Marsha Lederman. The book is called Kiss the Red Stairs, The Holocaust Once Removed. It's published by McClelland and Stewart. Its author, Marsha Lederman, joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.